For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. My first real encounter was the other end of a Wazim Akram. He was bowling round the wicket. I think there was great big fat old Shep umpiring. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he'd go play. And I'd go, well, who's bowling? Who's bowling the ball? <laughs> and all of a sudden Waz has leapt out from behind Shep and bowled this in-swinging, away-swinging, nip-backing out-swinger. <laughs> to which I didn't even see. My most cowardly incident was when he made me night watchman against Hampshire, inevitably, with Malcolm Marshall playing. And he had about 20 minutes to go. I'd bowled all day. I saw Peter come on. He said, get him on. And he looked out. He said, you'll be in a minute because Malcolm's bowling. Oh, crikey. So I pulled my gear on as slowly as I could. Of course, the wicket fell. And I walked out. And Malcolm was bowling. And he came tearing. He said, Malcolm was always nice. He always said sorry when he hit me, which I thought was fine. But he came and the first ball was just like a missile that went past. By. I never, you know, didn't hear it. I heard something flash past my nose. I thought, what on earth are you doing out here? stand my ground and get there and I remember also uh, both Bob Marshall and Courtney Walls telling me and fair play to them they'd pitch it up and be nice telling me that if I didn't get out soon they were going to hit me on the head <laughs> and Walsh, Walsh turned to me I've got you I'm going to give you one over to get out otherwise I'm going to go around the wicket and hit you and he did he went around the wicket and hit me and got me gloved eventually down the leg side and... Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket and those clips there are just little short extracts from our guests on today's show which is all about cricket's great idiosyncrasy, the fact that you can get a very fast, elite fast bowler bowling at a total novice batsman, a number 11. It's all about the elite against the inept, the demon against the dunce, the tyrant against the terrified, something that cricket really has, which probably no other sport does have. You don't, for instance, put a featherweight boxer in the ring with a heavyweight, do you, Simon? You don't, and you wouldn't, for example, ask a winger to play as a prop in rugby union, but you would ask an inept batsman to face a top-class bowler. We're going to hear from Phil Tufnell in this podcast. He talks about his batting nightmares. We're going to hear from a self-confessed batting coward that's Jonathan Agnew and we'll hear from one of the top five worst batsmen of all time a man who averaged 4.01 from 259 first class innings we're also going to hear your own scary experiences of watching or playing that's coming up in the second half of this podcast now yours when you went out to bat and there was a fast bowler at the top of his mark did you feel fear did you feel fear when you went out to bat? Well, I can certainly remember one case when I did, and, and that was uh, early in my career at Surrey, at the Oval, uh, playing for Middlesex and walking out to bat against the, the, the famous ogre, Sylvester Clark, uh, the Barbadian, uh, a man who I once described, he, he was a huge man who could lift weights that I couldn't even roll. And I, I tried them in the gym one day, the, the, the weights he'd just been sort of doing bench presses with, I couldn't even pick up. So he was a massive physique and he had this habit, uh, quite famously, of bowling pretty quick against the opening batsman, but often raising his game significantly when he sensed uh, 
uh, a nice shower or a hot bath with the tail end in his sights, the last couple of batsmen who he knew he could quickly terrorise and, and knock over. And I was one of those uh, potential victims. He just bounced out Neil Williams, the number 10 uh, Middlesex batsman, who was actually a decent player, and he'd just given him an absolute snorter and ripped his glove off and threw to the keeper, and he was out. And I was uh, next in, last man in, and I'd never faced a, a bowler of this speed. And the thing about Clark was he was very strong, but he, he got a, a very nasty amount of in-swing as well as, as the severe bounce. And that's what made him probably the worst to face and why he clattered so many people on the head in his career. Anyway, I was on my way out and it felt like, uh, with the field set as it was, uh, with all the men around the bat, it felt like I was sort of walking to the gallows, actually, going out there. It wasn't so much that I thought I was going to be injured as much as just looking completely useless, completely incapable. You know, I knew that I was going to get some short balls and I, I thought to myself, I don't want to look... Like a well, I, I described it once as, as I didn't want to look like a demented punk, sort of flailing my arms and legs and head in all directions, uh, looking totally out of control. You know, you want to still have a bit of respect uh, when you you play a professional game or in fact any game. And I, I was fearful of, of the fact that I just looked like a complete idiot uh, going out there. I faced three balls from Clark. Uh, the first one was an attempted bouncer, which is a bit wide, and you get drawn into playing those balls, even though you probably don't need to. You sort of fence nervously at, at that one, and it flew through to the keeper. The keeper was probably halfway back to the boundary. Uh, the second ball hit the bat really before I'd moved, uh, but somehow managed to get the bat in the way of it. And that's when the fielders were starting to stir him up and say, come on, Sylvester, we need to finish this innings off. And the third ball, I, I, it was released short of a length, uh, went into the pitch. I saw the ball definitely leave his hand, and I saw it sort of go into the pitch, then I just lost it completely. Don't know where it went. Suddenly saw it, a foot in front of my face, flailed my arms and legs in the air like a demented punk. The ball clattered into my head, which luckily had a helmet on, which I'd been put on by a batsman walking out, had given me his helmet. And I put that on just at the last minute because I didn't own one myself. Uh, it clattered into the side of my head. There was this sort of terrible ringing sound in my head. The ball ballooned up in the air uh, and was caught at slip. I wasn't out because I hadn't hit it. But luckily, after that point, we declared. And I, I, I just remember sort of trying to walk off. And my legs almost gave way under me just through the sort of adrenaline, the terrifying experience of knowing that I just didn't see the ball at all and looked like a complete idiot. The whole, my fears had, had been realised. I, I did look like a demented punk at the wicket, but luckily I survived. What sort of preparation would you have had for that innings? I mean, you would have known that Sylvester Clark had been in the opposition and there were lots of fast bowlers around at the time you were playing. What, so what sort of preparation did you have as a, as a lower order player to actually face that sort of bowling? Absolutely none. The nets would be commandeered by the batsman in the morning. Uh, you might be lucky and get a few R volleys thrown to you on the boundary edge before the start of play if you were a lower order batsman, but that would be it. And, you know, generally net practices on days off would be, again, you know, a few tired bowlers bowling a few off spinners at you at the end of the, the practice session because the batsmen had gone off and the, all the bowls were exhausted and there was no one left to really actually give you any proper practice. So tail end's got absolutely no preparation for this at all. And plus, you know, our protection wasn't great either. So it was really uh, lambs for the slaughter. Now you averaged in first class cricket 11.37. So you're in double figures. 11.37. Yeah. 11.37 from 226 innings. Tougher's. Phil Tufnell averaged 9.69. So statistically, he was a, a worse batsman than you. He averaged 5.1 in 59 test innings. In 59 test innings, Tuffers reached double figures three times. So he was a, a worse batsman than you. Yeah, yeah, would you say that was the case? Well, I, actually, I don't think he was a worse batsman than we in some ways because he actually had some talent. I remember him you know, carving the ball through the covers and he had great timing 
he just wasn't very uh, very brave. You know, he didn't fancy it, basically. Uh, you know, he'd often say to me, he came out number 11, I was number 10, he'd come out number 11 and say, how, how quick is this bloke bowling, you know? And it, what actually freaked him out more than the pace was a, an aggressive run-up. So if anybody was sort of pumping arms and legs coming into bowl, that made him a little bit more fearful than the ball itself. Uh, and then he'd say to me things like, uh, at the end of the over, if he survived, he'd say, oh, I'm not backing away too much, am I, kind of thing. Um, he did have a bit of a habit of, of taking guard, sort of leg stump and, and shifting his weight a little bit outside leg. But, I, you know, that was partly just a bit of nerves, a bit of apprehension. But also, actually, it facilitated his very good offside shots. So there was some justification in it. OK, let's hear from him. This is Phil Tufnell and a couple of his tales of batting woe. One of the scariest moments was um, Jamaica, but I didn't actually have to bat because the game was called off, thank God. <laughs> um, do you remember when the, the pitch went? Yeah. Yes. We've gone down there in the sort of like for, for nets, the sort of couple of days beforehand, I went out and have a look, look at it, and there's there's the old sort of like nails with the string, isn't there? For some reason, I've never quite understood why that is along by the side of it, and um, some bits of the ground were sort of like above the script string. And some bits of the wicket was all below the string, so oh, you know. And I could see all the batsmen, and batsmen don't usually sort of like um, uh, show any fear, you know what I mean? But they're also all, all the eyes were a bit wide, and no one was really sort of speaking about anything. I was sort of going, "Oh, what's the picture like, boys?" And they were sort of going, "Yeah, it looks all right. <laughs> it looks all right." And so they didn't want to show any fear. And then we've all got to the game, and. Um, you know, uh, we've won the toss and had a bat, and I think the first delivery went over Michael Afton's head <laughs> or something from a length mm. off of Kirtley and Courtney, and I think that, you know, the next ball sort of hit Alex Stewart on their forearm or something, <laughs> and then for the next um, the next sort of hour, I think that the busiest man in, in the ground was Wayne Morton. Mm, the physio, yeah. Yeah, I think he'd been out, I think he'd been out there something like 13 times. <laughs> <laughs> 13 times he was bloody knackered sweating because every time a virtually a delivery and there was a I mean there was a perfect little moment even though I feel sorry for old Butch here um, I think that I think that Jack Russell had was ill on the morning of the game so we decided to let Alex Stewart keep and put in Mark Butcher at number three and um you know, all these balls are whizzing around, people are getting hit and everything like that. And Butch has gone out there at number three <laughs> for his one and only test match, I think it was, in the Caribbean or something like that. He's gone out there, he's sort of like pushed forward and this thing has just risen up <laughs> on, it, on, it, on, it, on his face, <laughs> of which he's got the top of a bath handle on and was caught first ball. <laughs> And, and what was it like in the dressing room then? So you're thinking, well, well I've, there's a long way till me, but it might not be that long. Well, no, exactly. I mean, I was just going, Christ almighty. Well, and everyone, it's funny, actually, because I'm sort of like sitting in the dressing room, sort of like looking out of a window, absolutely sort of bricking it, going, oh, my God, you know, this is Alex Stewart getting peppered and hit on the hand and the head. Alex, you know, and Athers, things are leaping off a length and everything. And then sort of like everyone, because, you know, in those days, everyone said sort of chest pads. Were a little bit wimpy, weren't they? Like that, you know, oh, tough as you got a chest pad on, you know what I mean? Like that. And then all the sort of middle order batters kept sort of like sliding up to me, going, oh, tough as I could bowl your chest pad. <laughs> and I was going, f off. <laughs> so that was pretty terrifying. Yeah. But then thankfully, it was called off at lunchtime. And then sort of to, to I mean, you know, I mean, obviously the crowd were, were very disappointed, but um, I think that all the players, and especially Wayne Morton, were very happy about it. The other one was Wakar and Wazim hmm. at the Oval. I've got a strange feeling that I might have gone in nine or ten, I think. I'm not sure. Wakar, who, who had a sort of a a mesmeric run-up, didn't he, really, Wakar? Mm. And it was miles away, wasn't it? Mm. You know what I mean? And you, you were almost sort of like, you were almost mes mesmerised at the sort of the fluidity of his run-up. You know, oh, my God, you know, here he comes. And you sort of see this lovely, smooth approach and everything. And then, woof, <laughs> in-swinging, reverse-swinging Yorker. 
and, um, and which I th- and it hit me on the foot about three times, Ooh. which uh, yeah, which was absolutely excruciating and almost meant I couldn't bowl the next day. Actually, I can remember walking across the pitch at the end of play with only one shoe on, you know, because my foot was swaffling up so much. <laughs> then so I faced Wackar. My first real encounter was the other end of uh, Wazim Akram. He was bowling round the wicket. I think there was great big fat old Shep umpiring. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he'd go play. And I'd go, well, who's bowling? Who's bowling the ball? And all of a sudden Waz has leapt out from behind Shep. Yeah. Bowled this in-swinging, away-swinging, nip-backing out-swinger. <laughs> To which I think it might have knocked all three stumps over, actually. I'm not sure. <laughs> I like Tuffers' story about Wazzy Macram, actually, and I faced him myself. And he's absolutely right. It wasn't just not seeing the ball. It wasn't seeing the bowler. Because he, he was a slender man, Wazim, although he was tall. You know, he's very slim. And his run-up, literally, when he was bowling round the wicket, left arm round, he literally started behind the umpire. And so you could only see the sort of hint of his elbows kind of moving as he shifted towards the, the stumps and then suddenly pop out from behind the umpire and hurl it down. And all these arms and legs, he had this incredibly fast action, fast arm, and all these arms and legs were flailing about uh, as, as he let go of it. And you had no idea where the ball was. And added to the fact that, of course, he could move it in about three different directions at the same time, he was an absolute nightmare to face. It seems to me there are sort of three fears uh, when it comes to batting. One is just simply being out. You know, your day being ruined by one ball. You want to succeed, but one ball and that's it. You know, it happens at 20 past 11 and you've got to sit and watch everyone else bat for the rest of the day. Second one is being made to look a fool. You're either sort of poor technique or you know backing away. You're talking about toughers there, backing away, or, or being talked out by the op- opposition. I mean that you know that happened that, that sort of famous one at Lords when uh, Andrew Flintoff supposedly talked out Tino Best and you know, mind the windows and sort of drew him down the pitch and he was he was stumped. And then the other one, uh, you know that that physical fear, that fear of of being injured. Does that just about sum it up in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I'm not sure which is worse, you know, the prospect or the actual reality in a way. Certainly you do when you know that you're going to be facing one of these bowlers, uh, you know, the night before or the day before, you're thinking about it and and it does give you nightmares. You're in bed, you're lying there thinking, have I got all my protection? You know, am I going to be able to get out of the way? Am I going to be able to see it? Because there are some bowlers, and you know, we mentioned Wazi Makram there as someone who was very difficult to pick up. There was a bowler like Alan Donald, for instance, who was very fast, but you could see his deliveries. But you know, you had to be very quick to get get into position. And you know, th- there is so little time to to react to these balls. You've got less than half a second for a ninety mile an hour delivery. I think it's point four five of a second from release to the a point at which it either hits the bat or you, and. Uh, that's a tiny amount of time, obviously. The problem is that scientifically, your eyes can only adjust their focus every 0.3 of a second. Rapid eye movements are called saccades. I've done a little bit of research on this. I actually went into a, a net with Nick Compton, in fact, a couple of years ago, and we both wore these cameras, which focuses on your retina to see what you're looking at and how you pick up a moving object. And, you know, Nick Compton at the time was still playing uh, top-class cricket. He was obviously ahead of the ball, even though his eyes were only able to readjust to a moving object every 0.3 of a second. The top players are able to almost anticipate where a fast ball will be. And in that 0.3 of a second, the ball has moved another 30-odd feet, but they know roughly, their body knows roughly where that ball's going to be, so they can get into position to play it. And he was ahead of the ball as it arrived, his eye movements, whereas my eye movements predictably were behind. So therefore I was late on it. And you can train yourself to, to be able to react at that speed, but I think some people have just got it naturally. And some people have So how do you train yourself? I mean, presumably, uh, one way of doing it is to get a bowling machine, get someone to feed it, and gradually crank up the speed until your your reflexes, your your reactions get used to the ball coming off at that sort of speed. Because if you you go out to bat and it's the first time you've ever faced bowling at that speed, so, you know, say a club cricketer wants to 
adjust to the idea of someone bowling at 80 miles an hour or feel what it's like. There's no good just probably hurling a ball down from a bowling machine at 80, 85 miles an hour because you simply won't be able to cope with it. It just it, it, You actually have to practice it. And actually over time, I think it is possible, isn't it, to not necessarily play it really well, but you can adjust and react to the, the speed the ball is, is coming out of a, of a bowling machine. You, and, and you gradually, you do gradually get used to it in, in the way that, say, for example, you know, if you, if you were suddenly to go in a car, and, be, and you shouldn't drive at 90 miles an hour on the motorway, of course, but if, if, if you were suddenly going in a car at 90 miles an hour, it would feel, so, it would feel really weird experience. But gradually, if you, you know, if you do go through the speeds on the motorway, uh, you know, and you do go, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, gradually you get, you get used to the, sort of the speed at which you're driving. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a good point what you make about you get, you get used to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can play it well. Mm. Uh, you, you can train yourself to, to react. And actually, the, the best way to start is just facing tennis balls. Um, even if it's a bowling machine or someone throwing them at you from close distance and just ramping up the speed and you gradually get used to it uh, over time. But there's a difference between being able to sort of fend it off and actually being able to bat effectively against it. And that is what really distinguishes the great players from everyone else. I remember batting with Dean Jones against uh, Kirtley Ambrose for Durham. Um, Pope Kirtley was playing for, for Northampton. He didn't like Dean Jones at all. Uh, he went back to some one-day international, I think, or a test match in which Dean Jones asked Kirtley to take his white mm. sweatbands off because they were off-putting. And Kirtley responded by taking five for one and bowling like an absolute tyrant. But anyway, there so their sort of rivalry went back a, a while. And, and when Kirtley bowled to Dean Jones, you know, he was bowling the same pace as he was bowling to me. I couldn't lay a bat on it. And Jones was getting up on his toes and forcing it through the offside or pulling it through square leg or, you know, fending it off. I, I, couldn't, I could barely see it. And... Uh, so you know that really was a, a classic example of the the elite and the inept uh, in, in partnership together. Over time, yes, you can get better, and I suppose we are not seeing quite the level or the the, the the low level of averages, tail end averages that we used to get, because batsmen lower lower order batsmen now have more practice and more opportunity and more tools like the dog thrower and the bowling machines to try and get a bit better at facing this kind of bowling. Made there about Dean Jones, because last summer, Joffre Archer uh, to Steve Smith, and you know, people have said to me, you know, what, what was it like to, to watch that spell? I was in the commentary box at the time when Archer was you know, roaring in and bowling to Steve Smith. The thing about that, of course, is he, it, because Steve Smith is a top-class player, you, don't, you expect him to be able to deal with it. You don't expect him to get into the, the type of trouble that he, he did that day. People say, well, you know, was it a scary experience? Well, actually, I thought what was far more scary about that day was when Steve Smith came out to bat after he'd been hit because you really saw his vulnerability. I mean, he, I think the first ball, he, he flogged over wide long on. It was a huge slog. And he, he clearly was, you know, he was not the same batsman. He, and, and we know that now because he didn't play in the next test match um, under the con concussion rules. And it, you know, that, that was scary. I thought, you know, th this shouldn't be happening. He probably shouldn't be out there. And then a bizarre dismissal where he, he left the ball against Chris Wokes, was given out LBW, walked off and then reviewed it. I mean, it, it really... It didn't. It didn't look good at all. And that. That I think it was that part of it. I felt uh, really worried about. And that. That was the scary bit of it. You're absolutely right. In fact, I was in the stand that afternoon in the stand next to the pavilion, and I was scared for Steve Smith uh, when he was facing that bowling from Archer. Uh, Archer. You know. He. He. There's no sign. There's no obvious. Uh, indication he's going to bowl a short ball whereas some bowlers you can see they sort of duck their head a bit more or <clears throat> even run in a bit quicker maybe but Archer there's no telltale sign that it's going to be a short ball and it gets up from very very uh, full of a length relatively compared to other bowlers he don't have to bowl he doesn't have to bowl it quite a short and it's very close to the stumps he lets go of the ball from very close to the stumps as well so there's no way of sort of weaving out of the way and I, I remember watching that spell because he was bowling to Pat Cummins as well and some serious bouncers were, were flying through and Cummins was just about getting out of the way and I, everyone was was gripped by this this sort of scene and the thought would have occurred to many of us of the tragic death of Philip Hughes 
felled by a short ball of that type uh, in 2014. Philip Hughes, of course, was a great friend of Steve Smith as well. Uh, you know, and they, they, you, know, you do feel at times a little worried for, for people's safety or batsmen's safety. Uh, and I, I, that actually that took me back, funnily enough, to some experiences I had fielding at short leg to Wayne Daniel, the West Indies fast bowler for Middlesex, and seeing fear in batsmen's eyes then as well as they faced up to this hugely powerful fast bowler. One of the people who had that experience was our next guest on this show, Jonathan Agnew. So let's hear some of his tales of going into bat against these kind of bowlers. And let's make no bones about it, Yoz. Aggers absolutely, absolutely hated batting against pace bowlers. Well, I was a, 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 an absolute coward, as you know, and, and, and that was mainly because I got, I got a nasty one in the mouth when I was about 20 from Kevin Curran, actually. Uh, Sam and Tom's dad, he bowled me a bouncer, went straight in my teeth, uh, ripped my lip everywhere and so that, that it, it, it hasn't, it, hasn't, that's hasn't damaged your looks so I'm happy, happy <laughs> to say it might have improved them um, but but no that's, that's that's really why I, I, I just didn't fancy facing fast bowling anymore which was fine uh, and, until you know, David Gower as captain usually forgave me that no let's went out and played a few shots uh, Peter Willey uh, vice captain therefore captain when David wasn't about was a different kettle of fish because I used to tease Peter quite a lot he would take revenge either by hitting me or by making me night watchman because he knew I was utterly terrified. So, I mean, I think one my, my most cowardly incident was when he made me night watchman against Hampshire, inevitably, with Malcolm Marshall playing. And he had about 20 minutes to go. I'd bowled all day. I saw Peter come on. He said, get him on. And he looked out. He said, you'll be in a minute because Malcolm's bowling. Oh, crikey. So I pulled my gear on as slowly as I could. Of course, the wicket fell, and I walked out, and Malcolm was bowling, and he came tearing. He said, Malcolm was always nice. He always said sorry when he hit me, which I thought was fine. <laughs> but he came, and the first ball was just like a missile that went past my... I never, you know, didn't hear it, but I heard something flash past my nose. I thought, what on earth are you doing out here? And I looked up, and as you'll know, it's at the balcony at Grace Road. And I looked up at that. It's where all the players sit. And Peter Willie was on there, and he was laughing. So I thought, oh, okay. And so I got down. I said, you know, try and come, come and be brave, be brave. The next ball, he bowled this thunderbolt that, that went under my left armpit. It must have been way down the left arm. <laughs> but anyway, whoosh, under my armpit. Never touched anything. But somebody, somewhere, it might have been even in the crowd, uh, left out one of those sort of withdrawn appeals. Like, sort of, How's that? Oh, no, sorry. No, sorry. And those things. And I thought, I thought, I thought that'll do. <laughs> so, I, so I tucked my bat under my arm and walked off. <laughs> and uh, Sam Cook was the umpire, dear old Sam, who was a bit surprised I walked past him. He saw me the next day, and uh, he said, well, thanks, thanks, Agus, lad. I thought I heard something. Always nice to know you're a walker. Good lad. Thanks very much. And, of course, I then continued, and, and there was Malcolm, who was turning around to bowl the next ball, and he said, where are you, where are you going, man? And I said, uh, I said I'm out. Well, you know, well bowled, high fives. And, uh, and I walked off, and the next man in was Peter Willey, whose face was just contorted with rage as he walked past me for the last 10 minutes or so. And of course, he got hit black and blue by Malcolm, but that, that was pure cowardice. And I'm quite ashamed to tell the story, really. But until he'd been out there and faced it, until he'd been out there and faced 90 miles an hour bowling, yeah, you really have no idea. And, and you know, that we, you and I, are having to face the same stuff. Um, that David Gower or Graham Gooch is facing. You know, they can bat. Yeah. Um, they see it. And I remember one or two journeys with David in the car uh, trying to explain to him what the issue was. And it was basically, David, I, you can't see it. Mm. <laughs> I know you can see it. Um, and, and then the other one, I mean, famously Middlesex. I mean, we, we always had wars, didn't we? Mm. Always, I don't know why quite. I don't think no. Roger Tolton and Mike Gatting got on very well. But Wayne, Wayne Daniel was just... And he went to the lengths one year. It was his benefit. And I made, I made sure, I went to his, I went to his do. There's do during the game, benefit do. And I absolutely made sure that he saw me buy a raffle ticket <laughs> because I was due to bat the next day. <laughs> and I thought, well, if he sees me buying a raffle ticket, odds are, you know, it's going to be all right. Well, of course, it wasn't. Nothing changed. He was like a complete maniac. But this particular year, we decided in advance, or I didn't decide, but Peter Willie decided, the bats were decided, we're going to get in first. We are going to get in first because we're all going to get it. So when Wayne Daniel comes out of bat, we're going to stick it up his nose and give it to him first. Like, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, give it there. Come on, lads. Absolutely right. Yeah, come on. So out we went. And inevitably, Wayne arrived at some stage. And, of course, I was bowling. I'm thinking, why? why? There's no way 
I'm going to build a bouncer to Wayne Daniel. I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not going to do it. And so I thought, well, hopefully everyone's forgotten. So I'm just about to bowl the first ball at Wayne when Peter Williams, the gully, says, don't, for, don't forget what we said. I goes, stick it up his nose, let him have it. <laughs> so I thought, well, what, what am I going to do? I either, I either don't, and everyone knows I'm a complete coward, or I do, and Wayne's going to be furious. But, of course, Wayne had heard this, the shout. So I thought, right, so I bowled a, a rather feeble bouncer, if I'm honest. Anyway, he played this sort of helicopter shot at it, a sort of bull shot, but the ball flew over deep point and into the score box in the grandstand for six. It was an incredible shot. Oh, I can it's still like see a, it. I can still like see a that. Shot. Whoosh! Straight into. I mean, bats were flying out. The old scorers were taking cover. It was an incredible shot, and uh, it was a sort of uh, everyone sort of thought, oh, "Oh dear, okay." Next ball, I both all right. I've got to really give him a proper one now. And he, sure enough, he did. He did hook at it and was blued out second ball for six. And everyone said, well, no, no, because that's, that's told him, you know. And he was number 10, Wayne, because Tuffers was 11. And as Tuffers walked out to bat, all we could hear from the Middlesex dressing room was the unmistakable sound of a bat being furiously hurled against a wall or something. <laughs> it was Wayne arriving back in the dressing room in a rage. And I said, oh, the colour just drained from everybody's faces out in the middle. And, well, you remember the game. I mean, he just... I had dear old Wilf, I mean, I walked out the bat, dear old Wilf Slack was at short leg. And he said, don't worry, Yankers. He said, I, I roomed with Wilf on an eight, so it was a lovely bloke. Don't worry, you can only bowl one at a time, mate. <laughs> so, well, thank, and he was only trying to be kind, Wilf. But, but it didn't It didn't really matter, did it? I mean, but Wayne, Wayne all the time was... <sighs> He, he did. I'm sure it was a lovely way. He's a nice man. I met yeah. him a few times off the field. You'd know him very like well. So many of those fast bowlers, like with Glenn McGrath, somebody like that. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're surprisingly nice off the field, aren't they? They're all nice. All those West Indians used to terrorise us in the 80s. Yeah, Malcolm Marshall. Some of my yeah. best mates now. I know, dear old Michael. Yeah. You know, one yeah. Of, you know he is one of my... One of my Joel Garner. I mean, Joel Garner. Joel, yeah. yeah. I mean, they were... But fair enough. I mean, Andy Roberts, of course, was, was a great help. I, I wouldn't have played Ringham without Andy. You know, bowling friend Randy Roberts has his advantages. Um, so he's a, he's a great friend of mine. Um, but think, they just went about their business do you think in a that, totally ruthless way. You, that's, you, that's what it was. Yeah, sure, they did. I, I, do you think that the the reality... I mean, you know, it was obviously sort of scary idea as a number 11 facing these bowlers, but do, do you think the reality of facing those people was worse or better than the uh, imagined fear Ooh, that's, that's a really good question, isn't it? Yeah, how you felt... You, you, you get up in the morning at, at home or wherever you were, and there would just be this hideous, sinking feeling that today you're going to face Michael Holding or or Patrick Patterson. Or, I mean, there were so many of these fast bowlers. But that was the issue. There was no escape. The only escape was, was, was Yorkshire... And although he probably hate me saying it, but, but, but dear old Nobby Philip and Essex was probably you know a, a little bit slower in pace than the others. But everywhere else, I mean, he'd be like Tony Merrick or Hartley Elaine, and you know these, these people. I mean, they were they were they were all fast, they were properly quick, and so there was just it was relentless, wasn't it? And and but I mean, we never had any practice. That was also a problem. I don't know what you were like, no, but in, in, in when I was playing at Leicestershire, we had no proper batting practice at all. I would often be left. You know, people like me and Les Taylor, uh, you know, the last people to bat, and we could literally be reduced to facing something like David Gower's woeful offspin. And that would be it. And you'd knock a few of those back, and then you'd be like, watch one against Malcolm Marshall. And, you know, it's just, it was, um, yeah. it was pretty brutal. And I, I mean, I'd like to think, I mean, I had a reasonable eye, and I'd like to think that I would have averaged, you know, low teens, maybe even mid teens under normal circumstances. But they were not normal times then, were they? It was, it was every county, every county, had, and sometimes two. You know, down to Sussex to go, Garth Leroux and Imran, who slipped me a beamer once. Garth Leroux and Imran, no, I mean, yeah. It wasn't very nice. Yeah, I, I, can you, yeah. I, I can still see in my mind's eye now the sight of Imran running down the hill towards me. Terrific. At home. Terrific. Yeah. It was horrendous. He's a duck that headed. And he comes scurrying. Yeah, he bowled me an in-swinging beamer. And <laughs> flipped a freighter at the other end. <laughs> I never saw it. I heard something go by. But, um, Daffy, Daffy does his jaw. And it sort of it 
fell. And he, he came down the pitch. He said, are you all right? Are you all right, mate? And I said, well, I think so. I did, where did it go? <laughs> he said, he, he just beamed you. I think, I, I think, it, made me, I think it was an accident. We never, I don't remember apologising necessarily. I actually played in that match that, that Aggers is talking about there. And it was funny. I say funny. It was sort of pretty funny in a slightly macabre way, I suppose, because he actually took guard when he came into bat, uh, probably about six inches outside leg stump. And I remember Mike Gatting saying to him at one point, what are you doing, Aggers? And, and he said something like, well, I owe it to, me, to my side to be fit to bowl. Uh, I don't want to get hit, in other words. And uh, he sort of, he took guard outside leg someone kind of got away with it for a bit. And uh, inevitably, Daniel was bowling and bowled a couple of short ones at him. And he had a swish and probably connected with one or two. Because actually, Aggers had a pretty good eye, in fact. He could have been quite a good batsman, I reckon. Uh, if he just had a bit more faith in himself, I suppose. And in the end, I bowled him out. He was t- he took guard outside leg stump to me as well. And uh, I bowled him out with a slower ball, which he almost sort of fell over trying to hit. And uh, the ball hit the leg stump and that was the end of the innings. It's, it's interesting. He, he talks about there, about this sort of a bouncer wall we, we used to have between Leicestershire and Middlesex. And it, it used to happen every year. Uh, and I don't really know why. We all had fast bowlers in our ranks, so perhaps that was one reason. Uh, and we were each trying to, you know, get one upmanship or something. But uh, when George Ferris of Leicestershire, who was seriously fast, hit Roland Butcher in the face with no visor, and of course we had Roland Butcher on this show last week uh, talking about the whole kind of uh, Afro Caribbean essence to English cricket and what we could do about uh, helping black players get more opportunity in English cricket nowadays. Uh, that podcast is available still to listen to from last week. But Roland was hit in the face by uh, Ferris, rearranged his cheekbones, and I think then it dawned on us that, well, bouncers are no laughing matter. Okay, we asked you to send in your experiences, your tales of scary moments, either playing or watching cricket. And thanks to everyone who replied. Here's one from Felix, who says, The scariest spell I ever faced was actually only one ball. I was playing my first ever second eleven match for Newton Hill at the age of 12, and I was batting at number 11. We were chasing 190-odd in a 40-over game. And we couldn't lay a bat on their opening bowler. We'd taken eight of the nine wickets to fall by the time I came into bat. I remember watching from the boundary and thinking that if this was how fast people bowled, I didn't want to play cricket anymore. I can understand that as a, a 12-year-old. Nevertheless, I had to come in to face the final ball of the penultimate over with us needing four to win and our opening batter at the other end on 144 not out. No pressure then. The walk to the middle took an age and I spent ages once I was out there surveying the field and taking guard as this bowler marked out his ridiculously long run-up. Eventually, ran into bowl. I was just telling myself, get forward, get in line. Luckily, I did just that. I blocked it out. The first ball the next day was hit for four by my partner and we won by one wicket. I was exhausted just from facing that one ball, and it's possibly been my batting highlight in the ensuing six years, although I hasten to add my main role is as our off-spin. And that just shows you, actually, it's that it's sometimes it's, it's the thought of it, the thought mm. of it that's worse than the actual sort of experience of doing it. Yeah, and, and actually that is exhausting. You know, just the, the watching of the game unfold and knowing that you might be going in to face that bowler, it, it just makes your whole body kind of terribly fatigued so uh, a very good point that from Felix uh, thank you very much for your email there and uh, by the way I wonder if uh, his, your partner in that uh, partnership 144 not out out of 190 to win the game that must be one of the highest percentage number of runs scored uh, in a, an innings in, in cricket I should imagine actually or certainly in, in decent cricket uh, we'll get to Andrew Sampson on that one perhaps we've got some stats from him coming up later actually Here's another email from Rupert Style about a club match he was playing in. The Nomads playing a game a couple of years ago. We arrived to find a wet wicket awaiting us. The skipper lost the toss and we were invited to bat. He asked if I fancied opening. 
The opposition had a tall lad in the team, and we later learned he was a Sussex second eleven opening bowler. You don't, you sometimes do get that, don't you, in club cricket? In even a third eleven game, you get uh, some sort of really star professional, young professional, trying to make his way, trying to have a, a game or two uh, against a few no hopers. He says, "I opened with Jeremy Lascelles, and after taking a painful blow to the chest, he had his middle stump ripped out by an in-swinging Yorker. This tall fellow then bowled the next three batsmen, taking a hat trick with exactly." the same ball while I rocked from the non-striker's end. I managed to keep out an over of balls I hardly saw and then avoided facing him for a couple of overs. When I next faced him, he did me with the same in-swinging Yorker. So that suggests, actually, that even though he'd seen quite a few of them, it doesn't necessarily mean you can play them. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, someone turning up on the day you, you don't necessarily expect to be playing. And you, I, I remember the club I was at, North London, talk about the day... Andy Caddick played for the opposition when he was a, a, a 19-year-old, you know, playing club cricket, and there he was, you know, running in from the the sight screen and and terrorising batsmen. I mean, I'm sure lots of cricketers, lots of club cricketers, have experiences of that over the years of, of someone playing who who later goes on to, you know, really succeed at the top level. Of course, in Australian cricket, in Australian club cricket, it, it you know it happens week in, week out. Here's one from uh, Graham Allen. And actually, I, I was at this match. He says he's been watching first-class cricket since 1974, Test County, and, and played Middlesex League cricket for 35 years. And one spell sticks out. Show it back to 1999, World Cup game at Bristol, Pakistan against West Indies. I, I actually remember this ball as well. First ball of the game, short ball to Sherwin Campbell, who went to hook, got halfway through the shot, and top-edged over third man for six. The ball just flew over the boundary. He said, I, I giggled. I was so nervous uh, just watching. And, and he says that Richie Benno said in the commentary box, well, we don't know how quick Sherb is bowling, but I can tell you he's too quick for Campbell. And he says it was terrifying to watch side on. I can remember that. Just that, It was a thrilling moment, actually. The ball from Sherb delivered, and then it's sort of sailing over third man. And the boundaries straight at Bristol in those days were, were quite big, not quite like they are now when they play a one-day match. They're quite short. Um, and if you do watch from side on, of course, it's a completely different experience from watching behind the bowler's arm. And, and you know, some fast bowlers, you you do you do actually just have to watch the batsman. You can't sort of watch the you can't see the ball. You can't follow the line of the ball. You just have to look at the batsman's end to see where it's going to pitch. Well, yeah, that's that's true, and and that's true of two particularly uh, alarming grounds to to bat at: Hove and Cheltenham. Uh, Cheltenham traditionally had a fast pitch and the pavilion is side on there and you'd often see you know Courtney Walsh and Sid Lawrence charging in uh, at either end and the, the balls flying through head high and you're watching it from side on quite nervous at Hove I think was probably even worse uh, that was uh, Imran Khan and Garth LaRue in the in the great 1980s days of uh, Sussex uh, players and uh, just watching from the balcony at the dressing rooms there watching not not only the speed of the ball, but how far back the keeper was. It was Ian Gould for a while, keeping wicket to Sussex, to, to the Sussex fast bowlers. And he, he looked like he was almost on the boundary. He was so far back and he was sort of taking it above his head. And you definitely were, were fearful of going into bat there or watching it knowing you had to go into bat because you just couldn't see how it was humanly possible to bowl that fast there's there's actually a there's a picture which I'll post on twitter of me at non striker uh, at hove and imran is bowling to wayne daniel and imran bowls this bouncer to wayne daniel and it, it almost seems to as he jerks his head out of the way his helmet flies off and the ball seems to almost be bisecting the helmet and his head and flying through. And I'm just looking totally terrified at the other end. And that was a classic example, actually, of why not to wind up the opposition fast bowler because Imran bowled a bouncer to Wayne Daniel. Then Wayne Daniel, then absolutely furious, took six for 14 and bowled Sussex out and we won the Gillette Cup semi-final. So it doesn't always work to terrorise the tail enders. Another nice story here comes from Jessica Cobb, 
And this is a, a story with a slightly different twist. She says, The scariest ball I ever faced was one I was entirely oblivious to and have no memory of, but was also the scariest ball my mum ever witnessed. I was aged three and toddling about at Worcester in 1993 during the lunch interval of the Australian tour match against Worcester when spectators were still allowed onto the pitch while Merv Hughes bowled at a single stump. I was entirely unaware that I had literally entered the firing line close to the stumps and he hadn't spotted me, at least I hope he hadn't. Luckily my mum had spotted the danger and rushed to grab me before any injuries occurred. It remains the closest I've come to facing a ball from an international cricketer. And I'm in total sympathy there for for Jess, and thanks for your email, because we all done it, uh, walking out into the middle and covering a game and not being quite conscious of where the bowlers are loosening up and they're bowling at a stump and you suddenly sort of walk into the firing line and have to kind of quickly rush out of the way. So uh, thank goodness in, in this case that a, a poor little three-year-old girl didn't get hit. It's it's a really good point. Actually, back just as a spectator, keeping your eye on the ball. I remember a 2020 match at Worcester. It was the first ball of the match, and the crowd was still til, still taking their seats. And there was a hook down to fine leg, and it hit someone who was still taking their seat in in the crowd, and sort of split their head open. So, always keep your eye on the ball. Here's another one from someone who was watching on, watching his 13 year old son. This is from uh, Phil McCann. As a parent, I was watching when my son faced Luke Wood. The Ex knots now Lancashire bowler to win the match. It was a club game. Luke had finished his opening spell for the opposing team. And as my son was making his debut in the first team, he was in at number six. Luke had finished his spell, so I thought plenty of wickets in hand. Surely a tame debut for the trembling 13-year-old in the Premier League in Nottinghamshire. Of course, wickets tumbled, pads put on. Freddie strode out to the wicket. And of course, Luke Wood fancied a go at the youngster. And Luke brought himself back on. The field was set, comprised... Plenty of chirping close field as Luke steamed in. Crowds fell silent. First aid box was dusted off. First ball, Yorker dug out. Second ball in the ribs, calmly played. Fielders chirruped more. Luke runs in, unleashes a nose-fizzing bouncer, swerved expertly by Freddie. He must have been a good 13-year-old. I genuinely worried for his safety, though. The home crowd starts to buzz. Luke charges in. Ball after ball fended off. Dead bat. No way was Freddie's defence going to be breached. And a wide ball and expertly cut for a single crowd uproarious. In the gathering gloom, the home team survived. Freddie walked off intact, one not out from 21 balls. Luke Wood, on seeing Freddie without his helmet and seeing he was 13 years of age, apologised for the banks. <laughs> well, I can remember being more nervous watching my kids play, and I'm sure you know many parents share this, being more nervous watching your kids play than, than playing yourself. And actually watching uh, my, my two, my son and daughter, opening the batting for school against the MCC and two really quite fast club bowlers, and they were only sort of 15 and 17 or something facing these two quick, quick bowlers. You do get extremely nervous. But uh, as Phil McCann says there, good lessons, uh, good life lessons actually to survive and be able to talk about it afterwards. OK, well, thanks for all those stories. Now, Yossi, you mentioned earlier about some Andrew Sansom stats about sort of the worst players of, of all time. Uh, the top five worst players who played 100 innings and they are... And when you say worst players, we mean worst batsmen. So these guys were, were decent bowlers, but of course everybody has to bat. And uh, here is the list. Uh, the, the worst batsman who played more than 100 games uh, in first-class history is Jim Griffiths of North Ants with a, a glorious batting average of 3.33, though, of course, he did feature in a, a very triumphant last-wicket stand, I think it was in a NatWest semi-final, and got to his team, North Ants, to the final with a, a valiant stand with Tim Lamb. Number two on the list is Kevin Jarvis. We always called him Stiff Jarvo because he always looked a bit stiff when he was running into bowl. Played, of course, many times for Kent and also for Gloucestershire. In fact, he was one of those classic characters who took more wickets than he scored runs. He took over 500 wickets and only scored 403 runs at an average of 3.59. Third in the list is Norman Graham, big, tall Norman Graham, who, of course, played for Kent, who originally came from Northumberland. He was actually my coach at Durham University. Great character, but a hopeless batsman with an average of 3.88. 
Uh, number four in the list, I.J. Jones. That's Jeff Jones, who is Simon Jones's father, who played uh, for a long time for Glamorgan and, of course, for England. Uh, in fact, uh, blocked out the West Indies in a famous last-wicket stand in Trinidad in the, the late 60s. But he averaged only 3.97. And we finally get to our guest today, Mark Robinson, the England women's coach until recently, of course, who played for Sussex, he played for Yorkshire, and he played for North Ants. He played 229 matches. He only scored 590 runs, and his average was 4.01. And he holds that record you were talking about, Simon. He holds the world record for the number of consecutive noughts, 12 noughts back in 1990, although he wasn't dismissed in all those innings, but 12 noughts in 12 innings. But interestingly, unlike Jonathan Agnew, who was a self-confessed a coward, he was actually a willing batsman. He thought it was his job to, to get out there, but, but he was held back by a physical impairment. My eyes are fine, but they don't work together. They work independently. So picking up length uh, and depth perception is very, very hard. No, no 3D vision. So, you know, you've, a bit like you said there, you've got your own battle already. And I, I remember once facing Wazam Akram and he was coming around the wicket and, you know, the left armour used to sneak between the umpire, didn't he? And, and I used to think, I'm just thinking, this is the most unfair contest ever. This bloke can hit me from the toe to the head. I bet any point he, he wanted to. So you do, you were aware of your own inadequacies. But I was also really stubborn. I refused to back away. So I would stand my ground and get there. And I remember also uh, both Bob Marshall and Courtney Walsh telling me, and fair play to them, they'd pitch it up and be nice, telling me that if I didn't get out too, they were going to hit me on the head. <laughs> Wall Street Walls said to me, I've got you, I'm going to give you one over to get out, otherwise I'm going to go around the wicket and, and hit you. And he did, he went around the wicket and, and hit me, got me gloved eventually down the leg side. And Marshall, Malcolm Marshall, the same, he gave me the warning and then hit me on the grill. <laughs> Expect, you know, to almost said, right, I've given you that, that chance. So you did get a bit more used to it in some sense. I had another time when I was night watchman actually for Sussex uh, against Durham. And it was misery, and the wicket had greased up. And I was at a non-striker end, and Harvey was bowling the speed of light, and he hit Chris Adams without him moving. And Chris was a brave, decent player, and quick, to be fair. And it bloody went to his legs, sat down uh, to fire legs. We had to run. So I'm on strike, and then the first ball, he's nearly killed me. And then the second ball, I've missed, and I'm thinking I'm in trouble here. And you are, you're literally fearing the worst for yourself, never mind anything else. And we went off a bad light, they offered us a light. And it was the biggest best feeling ever of sense of relief that you're out of the firing line and then obviously you're in the next morning but it was bright sunshine and harmy didn't have his tail up and he bought half the pace and it was just a different different day so mm. yeah look there were mine my debut sylvester clark again all the players not my debut but second game ever for north it was first class cricketer for northampton and Sylvester Clark um, <laughs> was being talk, just being talked up. Though. That was the worst thing. He was talked up by everybody about what he does. He hits these amount of players, hates batsmen and everything. So you were absolutely in a, a nervous wreck before you went in. What did you feel when you went through that sequence of, uh, of, of getting out for about 12 noughts in a row or not making any <sighs> runs? What did well, you feel then? I want I want to wear because I want to, to be fair. I think about eight of them I was not out. So I used to, as I say, used to fight the corner and get protected by the bloke at the other end. So obviously, half the time you only get given two or three balls and over because you weren't allowed to run on the other. So you know you'd you'd get worn down a fine leg and not be allowed to run. And then suddenly, you're on, somebody tells me if I don't get a run the next game, I'm I'm a, I'm a world record holder. So it was a total shock, and you think, well, that's a bit unfair, you know. I think it was I had eight of them or whatever it was. Um, we're not out. So and I was and I was proud, and I know I wasn't much good, and I know I had dodgy eyes. But as I say, I was proud. So it hey, it hurt me my self esteem because you know I didn't want to be seen like that. I took my batting as seriously as I could, given my ability or lack of it or my disability. As I say, so and it was when I got to Sussex, it was a bit different because people took you know give me a bit of took a bit of interest in me in that sense and I, I practiced and as I said I did night watchman quite a few times I'm proud to say I never got out but ultimately my eyes you know as I say they, they, they didn't respond in the same way so I, it, as you said it, at times you did feel it was quite an unfair contest that era of late 80s 90s senior players were rubbish they'd, they'd talk up the fastballers which 
you know, in the modern era, you, you'd, you'd, you'd be slapped down straight away if you said somebody was bowling quick. If you, you know, it's not not the dumb thing at all. That area, you'd watch senior, with senior players absolutely trying to court the fast bowler, being overly nice to them. I know, Malcolm, how are you getting on today? As if, as if they wouldn't bounce them if they, if they, if they didn't want to get off the pitch. So. Actually, it, it, your, your story about Harmison, I, I, I remember um, facing Sid and Courtney and going in as night watchman at Lords and surviving. And they just tried to bounce my head, you know, knock my head off. And everything flew over my head and I survived. And then the following morning, it was a clear blue sky, lovely day, Lords. And I was night watchman going in, sort of effectively opening the batting. And... Um, I thought, you know, I'll just, I'm going to get a barrage for half an hour here. Yeah. So I got in the nets early with uh, Gus Fraser, just bowling, throwing me bounces from yeah. short, you know, sort of 15 yards. And I, I, I don't think I actually wore any pads in the nets. I just wore a, a chest guard and an arm guard and gloves and just and a helmet and just practice fending it off. And then I got out to the middle, Sid first over the morning, charging in from the pavilion end. Yeah. And I forgot that Sid. Took an over to warm up, yeah. so he came sort of stumbling into bowl for the first ball of the morning, and it was like a seventy mile an hour half volley on leg stump, <laughs> like really slow loopy thing. Yeah. I was so far back that all I could do was scoop it straight to square leg out oh, court. Yeah, I had one of those against Donald Night Watchman, not out overnight. Like sleepless night, thinking about it all the time, practiced, and then got out first over to Buddy Pot Welsh. You know, born in military medium, 70 miles an hour, good bowler. But, you know, you're there for the battle all sites. We never even got to it. You just feel cheated, don't you? Yeah. All that sleepless night prep, sweating. You never even got to the scary bit. Mark Robinson, whose highest first-class score was 27. But I really admire the fact that he was willing. I mean, some just really don't like it. But he clearly, he wanted to improve. He, he saw it as his job, I mean, presumably yours as a bowler, you, that's what you saw as your job and any, anything you could get with the bat was, was, was a bonus or, I mean, were there times when you, you really thought, right, I'm going to really make something of this and, you know, it is my job. Definitely. I, I think you want to uh, do your bit for the team. Uh, I, mean, I actually held out for a draw against Malcolm Marshall in one game uh, at Bournemouth, actually. And, you know, that does make you proud, even though, you know, you don't have that much ability. If you can manage to see your team to a draw, even uh, when you're staring defeat in the face, it's, it's hugely satisfying. Actually, Mark Robinson, there was one game in which uh, he was playing for Yorkshire against Durham. And Ian Botham and I had taken a number of wickets early in the morning. It was Yorkshire had been about, I don't know, 100 for four overnight. And we'd taken some quick wickets the following morning. And Mark Robinson, expecting uh, his team to, to do OK in the first session, had gone shopping. Had been allowed off because he needed some, I think he needed some new contact lenses or something. So he'd gone to the chemist and uh, suddenly all these wickets fell and he hadn't arrived back. We could have actually called the innings off and said, well, you know, timed him out. But we thought, well, it's such an easy wicket, we might as well wait till he's actually ready. So we sort of had a little bit of a drink while he was hurriedly getting his kit on, having arrived back at the ground. And he came out to bat and we thought, lovely, we've got a nice easy wicket here, Mark Robinson. And he actually got about 15 runs. <laughs> so uh, we, um, we had to sort of eat humble pie there. But, I mean, it, he was an incredibly dedicated cricketer. And, of course, uh, Sussex as uh, a county team who he coached and then the England women's team have benefited greatly from his experience and, and his dedication. The fact that neither you nor both or, or both you struggled to get him out, did that probably suggest it was time to... Pack up the whites <laughs> to pack up, <laughs> probably. Fast bowling is going to be a you know real feature of the next uh, few weeks. Of course, England West Indies series starting next week at the the Aegeus Bowl International Cricket uh, Bank. It could be a, a testing time for the, the batsmen on, on both sides. England have got pace in their attack, of course, and some and some craft. The West Indies have got some very good uh, bowlers as well, some good pace bowlers and and some pace. They're talking about the Chima Holder. A young Barbados fast bowler who took 36 wickets in their domestic competition. Really looking forward to the challenge, actually, and seeing whether you know West Indies have got what it takes to come over here and and really challenging. And they've got a very poor recent record in England, stretching back to uh, 2000. Where they've only won one test in England since 2000. It could be a bit of a test for the batsmen, couldn't it? With you know not much form behind players. 
Yeah, and and not much sort of just match time, is it really? You know, is just that the same for the bowlers though as well? Is that the same for the bowlers? Yeah, I, I mean, well, I think I think bowlers you can't replicate a whole day in the field uh, in the nets without any doubt. So there's going to be some fatigue. But the adrenaline of a test match and, you know, the competition and all that's at stake will kind of override your, your lack of match practice to an extent. So I, in a way, I sort of expect the batsmen might find it harder going than the bowlers. Uh, and what an enticing prospect, again, with, as you say, teams of fast bowlers and the inevitability that a number 11 will have to come in and face one of them, uh, make the, immediately uh, focuses the mind on that amazing last wicket stand last summer at Headingley, when, of course, Jack Leach, who is not inept, but is certainly a, a lower order player, managed to score that incredible one run in that amazing last wicket partnership with Stokes at, at Headingley to win the test match. Are we going to have a, a repetition of that? Will Jack Leach indeed get, get selected? And if he doesn't, it might be Jimmy Anderson who has to do some of the fending off of those fast bowlers. It's an invidious task. Thanks very much for all your emails. Keep them coming. Send them to simon.hughes at thecricketer.com and we'll read out the best ones next week. Hope you've enjoyed this episode looking at cricket's great idiosyncrasy, the inept batsman having to face up to the elite fast bowler. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye for now. Podcast Network. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.